Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today, on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got an interview and a live performance from producer-composer John Bryan in front of a live audience here at Chicago Public Radio. Jim, uh, very exciting to have John Bryan actually get out of Los Angeles anytime, anywhere to do a performance for us. He does not perform outside of Los Angeles very often. He is one of the music industry's secret weapons, one of the great producers of the last decade, records by Amy Mann, Fiona Apple, Kanye West's last album, also a terrific soundtrack composer, mainly for Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, and a great performer in his own right. Plus, we're going to look at, Greg, the last installment, allegedly, people are are saying there might be more, but the fifth and apparently final record by... uh, Johnny Cash and the American recording series that he did with Rick Rubin, one of the great final acts of an already stellar career. And I believe you're going to lay a Desert Island Jukebox track on us. But first, as always, we have some news. All right, Greg, the biggest music news story of the week, hands down, possibly even of the year, is that the number one concert promoter in America has bought the number two concert promoter in America. <laughs> Live Nation, formerly Clear Channel Entertainment, has swallowed up the 10-venue House of Blues chain across the country, and, and, and this isn't going to be good for the concert consumer. Live Nation, $1.3 billion in gross revenues in 2005. House of Blues, a distant second at $245 million. But still, Jim, we're talking about one and two now becoming one again, making one even bigger than it already was. Microsoft just bought Apple, basically. Yeah. I, you know, if we use the computer analogy in the concert world, House of Blues owned and operated 10 venues mm-hmm. across the country. Chicago was by far their most profitable, actually, but also Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Orlando, the one that was damaged by Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, Atlanta, Toronto, Dallas. These were mid-sized venues of, of about 2,000 people, 1,500 to 2,000. Yeah, anywhere between you know 1,200 to 2,000. And uh, you know we're talking about the only significant competition in several of these cities for any Live Nation shows. Right. So they they basically bought out their main competitor in some big markets. In Chicago and in Minneapolis, as well as several other markets in the Midwest, we still have one of the remaining regional promoters, Jam Productions. They do most of the shows of the club size and theater size venues in Chicago, as well as in Minneapolis. There used to be 10 or 12 big regional promoters that uh, were all swallowed up one by one by Clear Channel, now Live Nation. There's still a handful of people in, in cities. One of the things that the 
local promoters still maintain control over is the mid-sized theater or large club venue. Right. Exactly like House of Blues. Because Clear Channel, in, in the Clear Channel Live Nation vision, you know, you start by playing your first gig to 200 people in a Live Nation venue, and they take you all the way up to the giant amphitheater of 40,000 <laughs> or 60,000 people. Why is this bad for you, the consumer? It's driven prices up, concert ticket prices. Live Nation has been the champion of the three hundred and fifty or three hundred eighty dollar Madonna show, the you know the uh, Paul McCartney shows. They have a vision of corporate synergy, which includes the act comes to town, plays the Live Nation venue, is played on the Clear Channel radio station, is advertised on the Clear Channel billboard, and then in between. And before and after the concert, on your way to the parking lot, on your in the bathrooms, you're advertised to the entire time. It, it's really the shopping mallification of the live yeah. music industry. A more homogenized touring industry is is a bad step, absolutely. And not only for what it may uh, do to ticket prices, uh, which have gone up, as you've pointed out, in the history of Clear Channel slash Live Nation, ticket prices have steadily gone up under its... Uh, Ownership. In addition, what is this going to mean for diversity of bookings? Chicago and Los Angeles in particular are notable for the House of Blues there as being sort of epicenters of the rock and espanol movement. They've been very adventurous in the types of bookings, bringing these Latin rock bands to America and really giving them a foothold yeah. in the American market. As well as hip-hop. As well as hip-hop. And death metal. You know, basically the stuff that Clear Channel traditionally wouldn't book in its other venues right. played House of Blues. What's going to happen now? Obviously, this sale just happened. Uh, it was for $350 million cash. It won't all be finalized until the end of the year. It's going to probably be the biggest music business story of the year. We're going to stay on it on Sound Opinions, bring you a lot more perspective as this unfolds, and we'll try to figure out what's really going on here. a little bit of creep from the uh, vocal group TLC, one of the biggest hit makers of the 90s. The man behind many of their biggest songs was a producer named Dallas Austin. Austin's done tons of huge records out of his Atlanta bass, Pink Madonna, Michael and Janet Jackson, Boys to Men, you name it. He's probably had his fingerprints all over it as far as the R&B and hip-hop world has been concerned for the last decade. He had a weekend from hell, Jim, <laughs> in a, a few days ago in Dubai of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he was arrested at the airport, arriving for one of those chic parties for the model, Naomi Campbell. And he shows up with cocaine, <laughs> ready for the party, apparently. You know, you don't, you don't fly into any, any Middle Eastern country no, no, holding no, no. drugs. As I mean, a, that's pretty dumb. As he found out the hard way, he was arrested, he was jailed, he was sentenced to four years in prison. They don't mess around there. It's pretty quick. <laughs> I mean, There's man, no Guantanamo there, huh? This was right out of Midnight Express all the way until the uh, country's vice president and emir, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum stepped in and pardoned <laughs> our boy <laughs> before he got thrown in jail. And Dallas Austin, to his credit, got right on a plane. He got the, got heck, the heck out, out of there. there. Yeah. He's never going back to Dubai if he's got any sense at all. Unbelievable story. 1.26 grams of cocaine, four years in jail. One of the things you have to understand, though, Greg, is Dubai is not typical of the Middle East. Nick Tosh is one of our favorite rock writers ever, did a, a fascinating profile of this country in Vanity Fair last month about how Dubai is trying to 
draw people from all over the world to come. It's like 10 times bigger and better and glitzier than Las Vegas. There is the unfortunate downside that it's in a Muslim country where drinking and sex and such are, are frowned upon. But they kind of frown upon it in public yeah. and then, you know, wink and say, yeah, it's okay, you know. So there are, you know, apparently there is prostitution and drugs and alcohol. So it, it makes sense. He, he flies in. You know, they say, oh, you can't have drugs. And then they pardon him. But I'm sure it was a hairy couple of hours oh there for God. Dallas. I, more than a couple hours. He was actually arrested on uh, May 19th when he flew in for this party, spent the rest of the time in the Dubai police station in their jail without being able to post bail. Then came this hearing, then came the sentencing, and then came the pardon. My God, this man has uh, <laughs> well, learned. Uh, hopefully he's learned his lesson. No, no, but I'm telling you, I don't think that Dubai is like Midnight Express. Yeah. I, you know, the way Nick Tosh has portrayed the country yeah. in Vanity Fair, it's a great piece. you got to read it. It was probably the equivalent of being stuck in line at the shopping mall. I don't want to go there to find out. I don't want, no, I'm not saying I want to <laughs> test it. I don't want to test the difference. You know, exactly. when we do a live broadcast, I'm not that eager necessarily to do it from Dubai, but, but nonetheless. I never thought I needed help before Thought that I could get by by myself But now I know I just can't take it anymore And with a humble heart on bended knee Begging you please for help that, of course, is the one and only Johnny Cash on a song called Help Me, which kicks off the album American Five, 100 Highways on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, there's a long story behind this album. Johnny Cash began recording it the uh, day after completing 2003's American Four, The Man Comes Around. What were these American recordings? I think one of the most unique partnerships in the history of popular music. That's why I chose that song, Help Me, to lead us into this discussion. That's a song that was written by Larry Gatlin and probably most famously covered by Johnny's old Sun Sessions bandmate, Elvis Presley. I think the key line there is, I never thought I needed help before. I thought that I could get by by myself. Cash is singing this after the death of his wife and true love, June Carter Cash. He died in September 2003. This album was made in that period where he's in mourning. His health is failing, but he wanted to make another record. And uh, he, he had made several with Ruben. I think that partnership is extraordinary. I think he's singing as much about June as he is about Rick. I never thought I needed help before. I thought that I could get by by myself. Hmm. He found out he needed help. And Ruben really brought out the best of him. Here was an unlikely partnership between two Characters who never fit in anybody's mold. Rick Rubin brought us modern hip-hop by producing Run DMC, pairing it with Aerosmith on Walk This Way. Worked with the Beastie Boys. Worked with Slayer, the death metal band. Started American Recordings, his own record company. Worked with people like Tom Petty. He's a rock guy, you know, and he was very much of the alternative rock generation. And Johnny is this icon that Nashville respected but had no use for anymore. So in the final act of his life, they make these series of recordings where Ruben would basically just sit in front of Johnny, put a microphone on the guitar, a microphone on the voice, and let him sing, do his stuff. Sing songs that he loved, that he wrote in some cases or that he covered, and in other cases that he would have never heard unless Rick Rubin played for him. Something like, here's this song by this guy Trent Reznor. Forget <laughs> the way that it sounds here on this Nine Inch Nails record, but listen, Johnny, to the words to Hurt. And of course, Cash 
did amazing things with songs like that or The Mercy Seat by Nick Cave and on and on and on, filling now five albums. This is largely being marketed as Cash's last album, but it's not the last. We're not going to see the end of Cash product for a long time. That can be good or bad. On this album, his voice was going. He's not playing his own guitar. Ruben had to add that in later. He did it with some great people. You have uh, Mike Campbell and Ben Montench of Tom Petty's Heartbreakers. Beck's sideman, Smokey Hormel, alternative rock guy Matt Sweeney, who was in Zwan and Chavez, an interesting band for sure, but I don't know how much of Johnny is actually on here because he was intending on retaking some of the vocals and hadn't done it by the time of his own death in September 2003. But let's play something that I think talks about life, and then we'll give our review of this album. Johnny Cash loved a couple things, man. He loved prison. He loved God. (laughs) He loved the belief in one true woman. And he loved trains. And this is the last song he ever wrote. It's called Like the 309s, a song about a train. How much better does it get than Johnny Cash singing about a train on Sound Opinions? It should be a while before I see Dr. Death. So it would sure be nice if I could get my breath. Well, I'm not the crying nor the whining kind till I hear the whistle. Of the 309, of the 309, of the 309. Put me in my box on the 309. Take me to the depot, put me to bed, blow an electric fan on my gnarly old head. Everybody take a look, see I'm doing fine. Then load my box on the 309, on the 309, on the 309. Put me in my box on the 309. I hear the sound of a railroad train. The whistle blows and I'm gone again It will take me higher than a Georgia pine Stand back, children, it's a 309 It's a 309 It's a 309 Put me in my box on a 309 Like the 309 Johnny Cash's last original songwriting credit on the American Five, 100 Highways album that he worked on with Rick Rubin in the final weeks of his life. Jim, I, I, you know, you can hear it in his voice. This is a difficult album for anyone to listen to. If you care about Johnny at all, it's tough to hear. Clearly not in the best shape, clearly deteriorating, clearly on his last legs. I thought the American Four album was sort of the... Uh, the height or the nadir, depending on your perspective, of a dying man yeah. basically singing his last will and testament. It's even more apparent here with American Five, with June Carter Cash having died, that he was not only mourning her death, but certainly anticipating his own. Dr. Death, he's singing about the, the call from Dr. Death. Like the 309, he's t- talking about seeing himself in a pine box in that yeah. train that yeah. you're talking about. And that, I think, is by far the friskiest song on the record. A- yeah. Everything else is in a pretty mournful Ballad mode Ooh, it's a of a man lesson. who's, uh, you know, I feel you, you feel like a voyeur. You're watching this man die, and you're a voyeur in, the, in you, that. You feel like kind of a grave robber. They made a lot of great music in the last phase of Johnny's career, but 
it's not here. Uh, there, there are some very bad songs. Ruben took unlikely tunes to Cash, and it resulted in brilliance when they covered Nick Cave, when they covered Trent Reznor. Uh, but here they're covering Gordon Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind and Rod McEwen's Love's Been Good to Me. Ugh. Bad, Not kitsch bad, because you hear there's no kitsch left in Johnny's voice. There's no laughing. I think the magic of the earlier records was that, that Cash could find spirituality in such unlikely places. In prison, you know, in the execution chamber of the mercy seat. Here, Johnny's missing. The spirit's not there. Yeah, I am reminded of Billie Holiday's second-to-last album, ironically enough, uh, Lady in Satin, where, again, it was a case of hearing a once great singer reduced to a shell of herself. And I think for fans of Cash, just as for fans of Holiday, there's a weird, almost sick fascination in hearing that and having this documented. You respect the integrity and the honesty of a performer who can put something like that out and say, this is me as I'm dying. I'm still looking ahead, looking ahead to the light in, in the case of Johnny Cash. But again, it's not the kind of thing that I want to listen to a lot. And I would point people toward this compilation that just came out, this Johnny Cash personal file record, which documents the acoustic recordings from his early 70s through early 80s period. And that, to me, is a much more essential document, the personal file record, than the American Five 100 Highways. On the uh, Sound Opinions rating scale, Jim, buy it, burn it, trash it. I can't go all the way to say trash it for American Five. I mean, it's still Johnny Cash, and he's still singing some extraordinary music here, and his performances are quite moving. But an entire album of it is pretty difficult to listen to, and I have to give it a burn. There are moments. Help Me, which brought us in, I think the song Rose of My Heart, where he's clearly singing about his love, the love of his life. But boy, I wish that Rick Rubin had presented it in a different context. Because the story of the American recordings is one largely of joy, of an artist saying, hey, I'm still alive, I'm still vital. You know, Rubin and American Recordings took out a famous full-page ad in Billboard of Johnny giving the middle finger to Nashville. Because <laughs> Nashville Radio wouldn't play these incredible songs, new recordings, new music by Johnny Cash. Uh, that's missing entirely here, and, and it needs a little more middle finger. But it is Johnny Cash, so at least burn it. Jim and I both say burn it on American 5, 100 Highways, and we're going to be back with a live interview and performance from John Bryan, recorded right here at Chicago Public Radio. But before we meet John Bryan, we talked about this uh, Johnny Cash personal file double CD a little earlier in the show, and we want to play something for you from it. Uh, It's a track called Tiger Whitehead. Wild black bear is blooming in the thickets on the mountain. Sheep shire and watercress are growing round the fountain. Where a big black bear is drinking, lapping water like a dog. Tiger Whitehead's in the bed, sleeping like a log. Tomorrow he'll see bear tracks seven inches wide, and by sundown he'll be bringing in the hide. Pretty Sally Garland coming down the mountainside, where Tiger Whitehead's grinding at the mill, at the mill. She sits down on a bearskin And she says, you'll be my man I'll have me the best bear hunter in these hills A wild child was Tiger Whitehead And they say he killed 99 bears Before he went to rest, went to rest Once he left two bear cubs orphaned But he brought them right on home 
And Sally nursed the two bear cubs upon her breast Tiger now was 85 and he laid upon his bed And the bears he killed now numbered 99 Welcome to Sound Opinions. I am Greg Cotter of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're here with a uh, few members of our listening audience, and we thank them for coming. We are also here with uh, John Bryan, who uh, doesn't get out of L.A. that often, mainly because he's been a pretty busy guy. The last 10 years, he's uh, been producing records for, oh, Kanye West, Amy Mann, <laughs> Fiona Apple, Loudon, uh, Rufus Wainwright been working on soundtracks for Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Also has this little residency at Largo, a club in West Hollywood, where he's done uh, 10 years' worth of shows every Friday night up until a few months ago. And uh, these shows are legendary. It used to be musicians would show up to play with John late in the evening, and, you know, Robin Hitchcock's in town. They'd show up and play with John. You know, uh, Amy Mann would drop in, Michael Penn. But pretty soon people just started to come and see John because it was like a Grateful Dead show except better. I don't think there's ever been, there's ever been a show that you've done twice. I mean, it's been a different show every yeah, I, I uh, can't, night. I, I can't make any qualitative judgment of you know, my show versus the Grateful Dead, but I assume there are less people on acid in the audience. That's the one thing I I, but it, that, too, is an assumption. So. Yes, <laughs> kind of a new generation version of that, the longstanding residency that Les Paul would have every week in New York. Very much you so. You know, and people in New York would go to see Les, and you never know who would be on stage. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it would be Jimmy Page playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. really an amazing thing. Now, you ended the shows uh, a few months ago because of a little tendinitis issue. Mm-hmm. I've heard tell of that last show, you basically did the entire show left-handed. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Including playing Including, the drums. Yeah. And the guitar, right? Yeah, well, which is not, that's sort of not the hard one. And nor is piano, because, you know, you're used to using this limb anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but getting a bit busier with the left hand to fill in some of the space started to get hectic. Uh, the guitar was the sort of fun one to try and get through, which I just stepped on lots of pedals so it would sustain, and it was just like some very bad histrionic, you know. Everything 70s goes. guitar. Everything goes better with fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so but uh, we, we took a poll before you came out, John, and even most of the people who are here who are kind of diehard Brian heads, uh, very few of them have there's, had the... There's no such thing. Th- there are. <laughs> They're here. Very few people have had the privilege necessarily from Chicago and the Midwest uh, to go to Largo. I think that the way that you do the show is fascinating, and you did this yesterday at uh, the Intonation Music Festival mm-hmm. in, in Union Park. You will start by playing a groove on the drums, and you sample that. Right. Uh, when you hit your stride, you, I guess you click off the sample, and that loops. Mm-hmm. And you move over to the piano, and you get a little piano thing going. You sample a stretch of it, and that loops. And then you'll move over to the guitar and vocals, add that on top. of it. There are other times, I guess, where you add even other things in. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, Just it's great. anything to amuse myself. So a one-man band, uh, courtesy of electronics, that you set up and then augment. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I guess the fun of it for people is just seeing the process. I think there are a lot of things as a musician that, you know, we take for granted that are interesting to other people. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the first time anybody ever talks into a mic and there's echo on it, 
It's an astounding moment. I've never seen a human who experienced that for the first time who didn't go like, oh, my God, that's, that's incredible, incredible, incredible. It's there again, again, again. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. But you forget. You know, it's just another, it's like a, you know, a hammer or a screwdriver to a musician. It's just another part of the toolkit. Like, I don't know, I just started getting really bored going to see bands, two guitar, bass, drums, play their 45-minute set in the same order they played it, usually with the same in-between song banner. And the interesting moment I would always see at gigs, and, you know, when I talk to most people, they usually agree. The night that the PA goes down and there's five minutes of awkwardness and then suddenly they just go sit at the front of the stage with some acoustic guitars mm-hmm. and play for what people can hear them, that's the thing you remember. It's, it's the things that were forced to happen by chance that lodge in your memory. So my whole gig has been based around that and not being afraid to show the process. And building the thing with the loopers is that. It's sort of like, well, it's an opportunity for people to get to see essentially how records are made. Mm -hmm. And it also, in a way, does sort of keep me in a line of tradition with somebody like Les Paul, who used to do a live demonstration of how he overdubbed. Yeah. I mean, I used to go see Les Paul all the time in New York 20 years ago. And, you know, he did every Monday night, and there was something really beautiful about that. So all those things sort of coalesced into what Fridays became. And the mastery of all the instruments, too. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize... Mastery is a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> well, you know, i got to say, when Macy Gray, you know, how many, how many Grammys did she win for that first album? A lot of people don't realize, like, I think he played... Everything on that record, basically. Oh no, that's completely untrue. <laughs> no, it is. I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm one of a number of session musicians. I mean, yeah, I played on most of that record and mm-hmm. maybe a number of instruments per song, but not well, not all of them. I've by heard the story. I've heard the real story, and they say everybody's no, saying Brian that, made that record, basically. <laughs> no, that's complete bullshit. Andy Slater, <laughs> uh, you, you can bleep that. Uh, no, I was just uh, I was a session musician on it. I didn't produce. Andy Slater did a great job on that mm-hmm. record. I hear that a lot. Like, if I'm around on some record, somebody's like, well, you actually produced that, and you wrote all those songs, <laughs> and uh, you, uh, you pressed the record yourself <laughs> in some strange you know, factory you have that you don't let anybody <laughs> into. Um, but I think there are just assumptions that get made way too quickly. Like, God, you know, it's one that really absolutely blew my mind was... When I produced the uh, second Fiona Apple record, a big fan of hers came up and talked to me and was so happy and going, oh, man, this is the record, you know, we were sort of hoping as fans she would make. This is great. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm glad to hear that. It's beautiful. And he goes, so he started bringing up specific things in songs, and he goes like, oh, and fast as you can. When it goes to goes to halftime, that was, that was you, right? That's your idea. <laughs> I'm like, um no that's how she wrote it and it was just translating Mm -hmm. and then he brings up a bunch of other stuff and i'm like no that's what she wrote i Mm -hmm. didn't i didn't change a note of what she wrote and you know i think finally i got a little bit cranky with somebody and just sort of having to say you know it's not like i go in and it's like let me fix this the people i choose to work with are people i'm interested in learning from and Mm -hmm. and being around and i mean for me i get this beautiful view of watching my favorite artists work because i'm there uh but the assumption i think because of the you know the the classic archetype the myth of the uh the mad scientist which people just sort of 
stencil on top of me because I play a bunch of instruments. They say, well, it's a Prince thing. He does everything. And, <laughs> and he's like Phil Spector and puts the gun at their head and tells them how to phrase things, and uh, which really turned out to have some very bad ramifications. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, and it's just not the case. I mean, I feel like I've gotten to be around incredibly talented people. And my version of doing my job well, the best example I've ever found is there's an old Twilight Zone episode of an old man walking around with like one of those cigarette trays and he's walking through a diner and he he's trying to sell knickknacks and people aren't buying and you know he'd walk over to one person and go you know here you need this and it was spot remover and the guy was like you know get away from me old man i don't need that and the guy would walk out of the room and the guy would suddenly spill coffee on his tie and Mm. you know look up and the music would go yeah um to me that's the essence of what i try to do you try and fill only the spaces which aren't getting taken care of. And it's why it's fun to be able to do a lot of things. Like, oh, you know, today all it needs is like a little bit of crazy piano for eight bars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some days, maybe you're the person who knows what it should be on all the instruments, and it's faster to just play it than try to describe to other people. Sure. Some days, you don't play anything, and you sit back and you get a free concert. The misunderstanding is because of this, you know, Stupid archetype. Who's your hero as producer? If you, uh... mm, I think Chris Thomas, who is not very well known, but he was an assistant at Abbey Road. And when George Martin would go away on vacation, he was actually producing Beatle records, mm. although he didn't get credit for it at the time. Then in the early seventies, when he went independent, he produced. Well, let's see. He produced a, a Salty Dog for. Procol Harum. Mm-hmm. He produced a number of the early Roxy Music records, mm-hmm. the second and the fifth mm-hmm. one, notably, and the early Brian Ferry solo records, uh, 70s Badfinger records, uh, John Cale's Paris 1919. Great record. Uh, beautiful record. Then he goes on to produce all the early Pretenders records, mm-hmm. produces Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. In the 80s, goes on to produce the couple of the huge In Excess records. In the 90s, did Pulp's Different Class Mm-hmm. Um, most recently was working with you too. And what I adore about him is when you look at the trajectory of his career, he doesn't have a sound. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, qualitatively, it's always really good. There's always a very clear picture of what's going on. And it sounds like that artist at their best. If you put on the second Roxy Music record, it's what you want. That's you as know, good as it gets. Yeah, yeah, you hear additions of you or something like that, you know, or do the strand. It's just like, yes, <laughs> I, you're, you're getting what you want. Chris Thomas, okay, here, mixed uh, Here Come the Warm Jets mm-hmm. with Eno, mixed Dark Side of the Moon. Right. Now, think about this career-wise. He made Never Mind the Bollocks. Yeah. Okay, if, if you had only done that, mm-hmm. basically your name should be hallowed. But you think about them and how much they hated Pink Floyd and the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And here's this guy who worked with Pink Floyd. Right, Johnny Rotten wearing an I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. Hated. (laughs) It's like our music is a reaction against that. We do not want to be that. We do not want to be associated with it. And Mm -hmm. he's like, right on. Hey, did I mention I made the White Album? That's great. I'm Jim Deergottis from the Sun-Times, and my partner is Greg Cott of the Tribune. We're talking to John Bryan, producer and musician. What do you say you play us some, some music? Hmm.
unattainable that you can't live without. And now the unexplainable has you riddled with doubt. Things begin, things decay. Gotta find a way to be okay. But if you wanna spend the day wondering what it's all about, go and knock yourself out. called a, uh, a ukulele, John? Uh, it's an eight-string ukulele. An eight-string ukulele. I uh, recently learned it's also called a, a tarot patch. Hmm. <laughs> so maybe so related to a nicotine patch. I don't yeah, know. the usual ukulele has what, four strings? Mm-hmm. So it's like the double-neck ukulele. Yeah, I mean, this is twice as good. <laughs> like, yeah, twice the uke like for your prog, money. Prog jazz, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but boy, if it only had a fuzz box. <laughs> well, it's a great segue into... Uh, into songs, and uh, one of the things that your residency at Largo and the club itself is sort of noted for is, is the art of the song, which a lot of people say is a dying art uh, these days. You have been kind of a champion of that in terms of just the artists you gravitate towards and your own work. Oh, I think songs are astonishing things, and I also don't think most people really even know what they are. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? I distinguish between... What, for lack of better terms, I call songs and performance pieces. And what most people like are specific performances. We've grown up in an era of recording. And, you know, the very thing, one of the very things I love, recording has killed people's ability to hear songs purely as chord change, melody, and lyric. It's a very strange and beautiful art form because when it's right, boy, do you know it. But what we have sort of lost is, uh, I don't know, the best example I could probably give would be Led Zeppelin. Those things are the ultimate performance pieces in that, and the way I can illustrate it is... God promised me you were going to bring up Led Zeppelin. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I'm, no. I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think they're just absolutely astonishing, and the sort of dynamics they had are sorely lacking in music today. Uh, the record making is great, um, a true band in the sense that you really could tell who the individuals were. Mm-hmm. Uh, remarkable thing. And I don't consider most of those things songs. 
and the way I can sort of prove my point is, have you ever listened to anybody else play a Led Zeppelin song and gone, oh, that was a great, satisfying experience? Except for Dred Zeppelin, who I loved. <laughs> um, what people like is that specific guitar sound, that specific performance mm-hmm. in concert with that specific drum sound, with that specific drummer playing that specific part. Um, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. They're all different types of art and creative expression. However, if I were to sit and go here over on the piano and go, this is the melody to a Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> you know, and I could play, you know, 30 yeah. others. That That's the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I know it could sound like a snobbishness. It's not. I'm telling you, I love these records. Sure. They're great. Uh, however, it is... There is a difference between that and a song, say a Gershwin song, you could actually play in the style of Led Zeppelin and have a completely satisfying experience. I do it mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I want to hear that. But when you start playing Zeppelin songs, say in the style of like 1920s music, it's suddenly it's laid bare that it's like, yeah. oh no, it was about those people and those people were in a room and it was... Mm-hmm. And it was great, and I, I love it, but I consider it a performance piece, and I consider a lot of rock that people listen to be performance pieces. They're not necessarily songs. So, you know, I heard you had Tom York here recently, and there's a guy who's a songwriter. Comes into the band and goes, here's the thing I've got, and then they you know, rock with holy hardness and, and all the greatness they've got with mm-hmm. them getting in a room. I mean, you know, that's part of what makes a band like Radiohead stand out you know when that second record came out we all collectively went oh my god somebody who actually has songs and this guy's an amazing singer it isn't extinct yet yeah or cobain right right exactly and i mean okay here let's uh a little musicology course okay if you just go yeah it was cool it was you know punk rock it was popular he had it factor for days but uh if you take the average punk rock song, it is that same Led Zeppelin melody, even though they hated Zeppelin so much. It's kind of funny. <laughs> you know, but if it's like... It'd be, you know, one of a thousand punk songs. Sure. Uh, there's a big difference between that and... <laughs> I mean... I can sit here on grand piano, play an unaffected version, and we can all go, oh, my God, yeah, that's the best thing ever. Yeah. yeah. Again, my, my spine tingles any time I play that melody over those chord changes. Mm-hmm. That, to me, lithium is no different. It's in the same realm as being able to go, you know, uh, you know, where, you know, probably like most people, I remember exactly where I was first time i heard lithium i remember mm-hmm. back of the friend's car and it came on and i just freaked out i mean i was nearly in tears i'm like oh my god that guy's better than everybody's <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's true yeah but, you know it was so palpable like that's one of the best chord changes i've ever heard it's absolutely as good as you know gershwin or thelonious monk or any great thing that's existed 
Well, I think this is a point where we absolutely have to insert this 800-pound gorilla, two top Chicago rock critics. Uh, we were, we, when do we bring up Kanye West? But I think now's yeah. the time because, you know, we still have – I mean, it's amazing to me, even people who love music will mm-hmm. still make this argument to Greg and myself, well, he's rap. You know, he's okay for rap. <laughs> he's not a musician. Yeah. So, so <laughs> put, put for me put – put, put Kanye in that lineage of it's, Gershwin to Cobain to yeah. – Well, you know, the thing is what Kanye is doing – is remarkable. He has pure musical instincts. And I remember I was playing bass on something one day. And he was like, stop, stop. I'm like, what? He's like, you're playing funky. I hate when people play funky. <laughs> and I was, I was sort of taking him back. And he was really just like so sick of working with musicians, trying to wear rap stuff. Okay, I'm going to do the really funny thing. He's like, why won't people just play melody? <laughs> and I was like, I love playing melody, especially on bass. I said, you, you like that? He's like, I love that, mm. you know. And this was in the first few days we were working together. I'm like, we're going to get along fine. Yeah, we yeah. have no problem. I've watched him walk into a control room where I've had something up. I've made a rough mix. Think it sounds decent, and you know, it's in a good place for us to start work when he comes in. He'll come in and go, no, 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 it's all wrong. Throws all the faders down, puts them up, and in five or six minutes makes these really extreme relationships between things, and suddenly it has life force. Mm. The guy has pure instincts. He knows it when he hears it. He has the commitment to his ideas. And, you know, some musicians will think this is bull, but, you know, the records he gravitates to and what sections he grabs, they're melodic sections. He absolutely gets it. He understands it. And then when you hear how he pits other things against it, you can see that he understands juxtaposition. The guy is an artist. There's some Kanye West, the song Gone, from his late registration album, with that incredible string part that was uh, composed, arranged, and orchestrated by our guest, John Bryan. This is Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to be back in a minute with more of our discussion with John Bryan and a Desert Island jukebox pick from Greg Cott. I'm ahead of my time, sometimes years out. So the powers that be won't let me get my ideas out. And that make me want to get my advance out. And move to Oklahoma and just live in my aunt's house. Yeah, I romance the thought of leaving it all behind. Kanye, step away from the lime. Light, like when I was on the grind in the one. Nah, nah, nah. Before model chicks was bending over. Or dealerships ask me, Benz Rover. Man, if I could just get one beat on Hover, we could get up off the sheet. Sofa, what the summer of the shy got to offer? An 18 year old sell drugs to get a job, you gotta play Euro. My dog worked at Taco Bell, hooked us up plural. Fired a week later, the manager count the churro. Sometimes I can't believe it when I look up in the mirror. How we out in Europe, spinning euros. They claim you never know what you got till it's gone. I know I got it, I don't know what y'all own. I'ma open up a store for aspiring MCs. Won't sell them no dream, but the inspiration is free. But if they ever flip sides like Anakin, you will see. Everything, including the mannequin. They got a new bitch now. You Jennifer Aniston. Hold on, I handle it. Don't start panicking. Stay calm. Shorty's at the door because they need more. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We are listening to John Bryan. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Jim DeRogatis is my partner from the Chicago Sun Times. Man, not only are you this uh, Hollywood uh, 
movie composer, soundtrack maven. Uh, you've, you've done some great production wow, work. Oh, a maven. Yes, you are. You have your own cottage <laughs> I industry. I feel like Citizen Kane. And actually, I, I have to say, you know, just a quick side note. I, I listened to the Punch Drunk Love uh, soundtrack just for fun, independently of the movie, because I think the compositions themselves actually stand on their own incredibly well. And then when you see with the movie, you, you kind of get what you're going at. You talk about a lost art, songwriting, the, the whole Hollywood or just a movie soundtrack in itself has become sort of a, a, a lost art. How do you do that? How do you do that well? As opposed to like, okay, know. let's call up uh, the latest hot band to write a, a, a kickoff song for the new Godzilla blockbuster, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's more the fault of the filmmakers and the movie companies than the film composers. There are a ton of talented people on the West Coast who can do anything that's asked of them. And for the most part, what's being asked of them is to be typical. And most of their paychecks depend on homogeny. And, you know, that's not their fault, specifically. I've just been lucky in that I've worked with people who are mavericks and mavens and stand up for themselves. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is a guy who basically won't allow any movie people onto the set or any recording session. And I didn't even realize this was special because I started with Paul. And it's only in the intervening years where I realized there are always producers around. There's always somebody visiting from the movie company. They always have to have an opinion. (laughs) The film guys have it tough. It's a very, very thankless job. And I think the only reason I've gotten to do some things that have maybe stood out a little bit is because I've aligned myself with people who are trying to do that in every choice they make. Mm -hmm. You know... Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry and Paul Thomas Anderson and David O. Russell. I mean, these are not people who are going around trying to make movies like everybody else. It's, in fact, they wake up in the morning going, how am I going to do something different? I've been lucky. All I've generally heard in my career is somebody doesn't go, hey, how can you make that sound more like our things? If anything, they're going to be as quick as me to point out, like, yeah, that just sounds like other movies. (laughs) Which is beautiful. That's the kind of comment I want. I want somebody to call me if I'm, you know, being lazy. I want to get mm. called on it. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the obvious thing to do for the scene, and it's great, and you did it right, you know, in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Um, but come on. I mean, we've got the opportunity to do something here. That's and cool. when somebody says that to you, it's like you're, you're an idiot not to rise to the occasion. You've got a, many avenues of expression, John, and uh, the question is, you've written a number of songs since the last record came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen you perform a number of them over the years. Great great stuff. And I guess oh, the question to me is, is, is there a part of you that needs to get that stuff out, or are you satisfied with the other stuff that you're doing artistically? See, I don't, I don't feel... Okay, because I've never felt part of... Uh, what I call the there's like the rock myth and the sort of punk myth stuff. I'm I'm not interested in it. If I didn't have everything else, I would probably have a little more burning drive, but I don't. I don't have personal ambition in that way of I must get my records out. People must pay attention to them. People must say they're good. I must be doing that and I better do it soon cuz you know, whatever. Well, I'm I'm 42. It's too late already, isn't it? By the standard clock, I've already completely done it. I've done a very poor job with my career. (laughs) Um, And it's confusing for some people to understand. But, uh, you know, there's a problem I've run into. People who know me as a producer first will actually sit down, like very kindly trying to 
talk to me so I can stop being so self-destructive. Like, you've got to, you know, why don't you just concentrate on that? I mean, the movie stuff, not, and it's cute, you want to be a songwriter, but just do that. Like, you know, you yeah. could be, you know, you could really make something of yourself. <laughs> Honestly. And I'm talking people I really respect. Yeah. If people knew me as a songwriter first, okay, why are you so psychologically, willfully self-destructive as to not put out records all the time? You're one of my favorite songwriters. Why don't you do that more why are you wasting your time working for other people that's it's really worrisome and i think you really need to look into it and you should stop doing these other things <laughs> the people who do movies don't even notice that, that i'm a song like not even yeah. it's not on their radar the fact that i produce records doesn't matter people who are doing movies are completely tunnel vision not only about movies in general but only their movie <laughs> right nothing right, right. else exists so i'm sure my film agent would be happy if I didn't produce records and didn't constantly say no when things mm. came in. I'm sure a lot of the artists I produce could care less whether I get anything of my own done. Yeah. And for me, it's all fun and it's all wonderful. And if I'm lucky enough to not be hit by a bus, by the time my life's done, I'll probably have made as many records as a solo artist as most people make in their career because other people only make them as long as record companies are paying for them, promoting them as long as audiences are showing up. Right. Only during the period for some people where there's a certain sort of vanity mm -hmm. in it like, well, you know, I look too old to be in a rock band now, so I can't really do that as much now. You know, the rock fans, like, I've, that doesn't matter. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm, you know, if I look like, Benjamin Franklin, it's not really going to be an issue for <laughs> yeah. me. In a week, I can work on a movie, yeah. play on somebody else's record, write a song with somebody, play a gig of my own, spend a day putzing around in a studio, maybe recording some of my own songs, maybe just making sound, and take two days off and see friends. But the fact is, I intend to do stuff until they put me in the ground. Some of the uh, the, the uh, machinations that David Singer went through to get you to come to Chicago to perform at the Intonation Music Fest, and I was saying to myself the whole time, it's like, hey, what's, you know, you call the guy up, he wants to play or he doesn't. Suddenly it all makes sense. <laughs> I'm amazed you're here. Yeah. <laughs> really, we're amazed and we're happy, man. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Why don't we, uh, why yeah, don't we wrap songs. it up and yeah. maybe, you know, give Excellent. us a, another song or two, and then I think you're, you're flying back home. Okay, what might be... Okay, here, I'll just play one instrumental thing. Let's see if I can get through it.
that one of the soundtrack pieces, John? Mm-hmm. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Exactly. All right. <laughs> John Bryan on Sound Opinion. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks, John. Cool to be here. Cool. See you guys soon. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn in popping a quarter into the desert island jukebox. Greg, it's your week. What do you got? Well, Jim, I know that you shed no tears when this news was announced about 10 days ago, but I cried for the both of us <laughs> yeah. because I love this band. I'll let you have that one. Sleater Kinney, I think one of the best bands in rock and roll for the last decade basically announced that they're breaking up at the end of their summer tour, which ends in Chicago, in Grant Park, on August 4th at Lollapalooza. The band's website said after 11 years as a band, Sleater Kinney have decided to go on indefinite hiatus. Indefinite hiatus sounds an awful lot like we're quitting, <laughs> never to be seen again. Nobody quits anymore, though. You well, know, the Pixies said that, and well, Mr. Burma said that. I mean, nobody quits. They'll, I, I, they'll be back for I, the cash-in tour 10 years from now. You know, they can cash in all they want. They left behind seven extraordinary albums, each one... I think, a gem. Uh, But I really think they found their stride with their third record, 1997, Dig Me Out. And the reason they did was the addition of drummer Janet Weiss, who I think really made a difference in the way the band sounded. Corin Tucker and Kerry Brownstein were there from the beginning, trading vocals, trading guitar parts. Lovers at one time broke up and maintained the band in spite of the tensions that would be inherent in such a situation. And I think that that gave a lot of punch and oomph to the Dig Me Out record. Recorded during a blizzard in Seattle in the winter of uh, 97, you can hear these three gals in the studio punching their way out of this cabin fever situation with some of the best rock and roll of that decade, I think. The very first song on the record, I think, kind of indicates the shift that the band took. And you can hear it when Janet Weiss hits that snare drum for the first time in this song. It's like firing off a starting pistol. You know, all three members racing the guitar, playing counterpoint to the vocals as Corin uh, Tucker and Carrie Brownstein swap lines throughout the song. And Weiss's drumming is just maniacal. Less than two and a half minutes, the song is over, but it really set the tempo and the energy for the remainder of Sleater Kinney's career, where I think the band just kept making great records thereafter. And this is the very first track on that third album and the title song, Dig Me Out on Sound Opinions.
That's Dig Me Out from Sleater Kinney. That's my Desert Island jukebox for this week. Uh, Sleater Kinney, longtime Portland trio with his swan song at Grant Park August 4th. I've not know, missed Greg. that show, Jim. <laughs> I well, I'll be there at Lollapalooza <laughs> at Chicago's Grand Park. I don't know if I was in a band. Uh, well, I am in a band, but we are not playing Chicago's Grand Park, and, and I wouldn't because bands play there and they break up. The Replacements famously broke up on stage at a July 4th concert in Grand Park, and now Sleater Kinney is choosing to bow out there. Yeah, well, who knows? We, who widespread Panic played last year in Grand Park. I, we couldn't have been so lucky. They're still together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do we have for next week? Next week we have Rhymefest, who I think has made one of the best records of the year already. In the middle of summer, we've got a classic hip-hop album from You're already Rhymefest. working towards the ten, the, the year-end right. best-of list. You just finished the mid-year. It's all about lists. Why should people care? This guy co-wrote Jesus Walks with Kanye West. People have been waiting for his proper debut album ever since. He's finally dropping it next week, and he's here in the studio live with us. Plus, we're going to talk about the new Tom York, don't call it a solo album, right? Uh, but the album credited to Tom. Got some thank yous to say on the way out. We want to thank David Singer of the Intonation Festival, who helped uh, bring John Bryan by. As always, our executive producer is Tori Malatia. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. Dino Armiros gives us legal assistance. Joe Dassault gives us technical assistance. And Mary Gaffney gives us recording assistance. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>